You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. The book of Ezekiel is a, it's a hard book. It's, it's a book of good intentions. It's, you know, it's kind of one of those books that you start out reading, but because it's so complex and bizarre a book, and because it's so heavy in its judgments, many people don't finish it. As a result, many people don't have a good handle on the history of that period. And so the first couple of sermons is going to be a little bit of a history lesson as we move through. And last week being New Year's, Sun, New Year's Sunday, uh, we weren't able to maybe get to some of, or all of that. And so uh, let me give you a little bit of a history leading up to Ezekiel again because it is essential to getting the book. After the book of Judges, uh, which concluded around 10, or about 1051 B.C., the book concludes with chapter 21, verse 25, which says, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A number of years ago, we did the the book of Judges. Though there was no king, Israel was still wanting a king, but a king just like their neighbors had. Even though God had told them since Abraham that he alone was their king, Even 450 years later, after Moses, Israel still was resisting the Lord and still desired a king. They refused to allow God to be their king. And the reason was they wanted to be lords over their own life. And God got in the way of them doing what was right in their own eyes. In fact, from Judges on, Israel seemed always seemed to be wanting what their neighbors had. They wanted a king like their neighbors had. So that they could do what they wanted with their own lives. They wanted gods like their neighbors had and claimed. Again, so that they could do what they wanted to do with their lives. And these were the basis for their ongoing cycles of rebellion and unfaithfulness to the God of their covenants. See, long ago, God called their forefathers uh, Abraham and made covenants with him and with his descendants to make them into a strong nation, to bless them and bless anyone who blesses them, to provide for them, to protect them, as long as they served him only. But they wanted a human king. And then they wanted other gods. So God gave them a king, King Saul. And as you know, he started out humble and good. He united the kingdom, the nation together under God, but pride gripped his heart, and he went mad with jealousy, especially over David, and he sinned against the Lord, and he oppressed his own people. So God then anointed David, who succeeded Saul as king. David had a great love for the Lord and became a great king, and he upheld the covenants of the Lord, and he eradicated all the rest of the traces of the descendants of the Nephilim from Genesis 6, from the earth. This further united the kingdom of Israel together. During his reign, David established Jerusalem as the holy capital of Israel. It became the city of God, and in it, David built a beautiful palace for himself. But he felt kind of bad. Since the days of Moses until David's reign, Israel met the Lord around a tent called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. God was tangibly present there with the nation throughout all of their travels through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings and into the promised land, even up until the time of David. But David didn't think that it was right that that he should have a palace and the Lord should not have a beautiful 
temple worthy of his name. And so he, he desired to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. But what did the Lord say? No, David, you will not be the one to build for me a temple. Your son, Solomon, will build the temple for me. And when Solomon did succeed his father as king, he did build a magnificent temple for the Lord. Two things you have to understand about Israel. In their minds, their salvation was anchored to two places, the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple. As long as these two things stood standing, which they thought would be forever, then their salvation was secure because God was among them in those places. However, listen to Solomon's prophecy at the dedication of the temple of the Lord that he built. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 36 to 40. When they, your people, as he says in verse 34, the Israelites sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a faraway land or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all of their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they, have, where they were taken, and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and, your temp- and toward your temple that I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayers and their pleas, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be opened and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place, this new temple in Jerusalem. These words were not just a what if. These are prophetic words projecting forward 300 plus years when after centuries of sin and idolatry, God would allow a foreign enemy to destroy the holy city and its temple and take his people into captivity to a far away land. Upon Solomon's death, the kingdom divided into two geopolitical parts, as you see up here. Northern Israel, the northern part of the kingdom was called Israel, with Samaria becoming eventually its capital city. And the southern part of the kingdom was called Judah. Its capital remained Jerusalem. This is a map of that division, and it was a very bold division. Israel in the north, say Israel in the north. And Judah in the south, say Judah in the south. These people did not like each other. The northern kingdom of Israel constantly struggled and grew more and more wicked. Their first king, uh, Jeroboam, introduced, reintroduced, I guess, if you will, idolatry to the northern kingdom. And they turned away from Yahweh even more, the God of their ancestors, the God of the covenants, and they never did have a good king as a result of it. God even tried to bring the nation back by sending prophets over and over again, but Israel kept rebelling. They never did return to him. So God eventually exiles them into captivity by a nation called Assyria in 722 B.C. And eventually the northern kingdom just kind of got absorbed into Assyria and she completely ceased to exist around 720 B.C. In 612 B.C., Babylon conquers Assyria and becomes the dominant superpower throughout the ancient Near East. Judah, on the other hand, remained smaller than the two kingdoms after the division 
They did have some good kings. One after another, though, they turned away from the Lord. Now, Yahweh didn't divorce Judah like he did Israel. They didn't cease to exist, but he did send them into exile, using the Babylonians to march into Jerusalem and take Judah's king, Jehoiakim, and his officials and all the temple treasury back to Babylon in about 605 B.C. But that was just the first of three sieges upon Jerusalem before the destruction of the city and the temple in 586 B.C. It was during the second siege that Ezekiel, a 30-year-old, 30-year young priest from Judah, is deported into Babylon, along with a number of other priests and city officials. And this is where the book of Ezekiel opens for us. And it opened brilliantly and fantastically. Ezekiel has this glorious vision of the Lord with images that the Jews of his day and even some of the Babylonians would have recognized but they would seem bizarre to us when we read them. In fact, some have things, some had, have this vision that it was perhaps a UFO, like if you watch Ancient Aliens or something. No, this is not that. This was a glorious throne chariot theophany. This was a visitation of the Lord in person. Ezekiel looking upon the Lord on the throne, surrounded by magnificent heavenly beings, and his response was an overwhelming expression of reverence. What happened? Verse 28 of chapter 1. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. And that leads us into chapter 2. To hear what the Lord actually did say to Ezekiel. Chapter 2, let's read uh, verses two to, uh, 1 to uh, 8. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Let's stop there for a moment. Yahweh does more than just speak to his prophet. First of all, he tells Ezekiel to stand up. But then it's the Holy Spirit that goes into him, and then the Holy Spirit raises Ezekiel to his feet. This is more than just a vision now. This is a happening in real time and the Spirit is now animating him and quickening him with the ability to hear the words of the Lord his God. And we'll see that this is so needed because of the message that he's going to be receiving, how it is so bracing. 93 times throughout the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is addressed as a mere mortal by the words Ben-Adam. Literally in the Hebrew, it means the son or the descendant of Adam, a man. But he never, Yahweh never calls him by his own name. That may speak more about the importance of the office of the prophet as a kind of a mediator, if you will, who stands between Yahweh and his people. But God does speak. And he gives Ezekiel a commission. And it must have been a petrifying commission. But in the next steps, in the next section, God tells Ezekiel four times not to be afraid. But afraid of what? Well, let's find out. This is point number one. What's so scary about God's commission? So our first point in the form of a question is, what's so scary about God's commission? Verse, uh, verse 3 and following. Ezekiel 2, verse 3. Yahweh said, Son of man... I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. 
The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that the prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like the rebellious people. Open your mouth and and eat what I give you. As scary as a vision of God must have been, as scary as being possessed and animated by the Spirit of God and stood up onto your feet must have been, to his own fellow mortals and exiles, God tells Ezekiel not to be afraid. Why? Well, remember what we've learned of Israel since the book of Judges and what is repeated repeatedly throughout this first little section of chapter 2. There are people who just want to do what is right in their own eyes. They don't want to listen to the Lord. They don't want to uphold their end of the covenants. They're prone to rebellion. Yahweh was supposed to be their king, committed to the salvation and the protection of his subjects, and he, he was all along never failed. And Israel was supposed to be a loyal nation. But as you read here, they rebelled constantly. Remember, this reference to Israel is now a reference to the southern kingdom of Judah because the northern kingdom of Israel is no more. Remember, the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians and they're taken captive and they're just kind of absorbed into Assyria. So these accusations in verses 3 to 8 where the Lord describes his people as rebellious, obstinate, stubborn, and a nation who do nothing except revolt against him any chance they get, that Israel is now represented represented in the people of Judah who are taken into Babylonian captivity. A few still are left in in Jerusalem, but they are the collective we now. So even in exile, the rebellion of Israel, Judah, continues unrepentant. And they had been like that ever since the exodus out of Egypt. And if you were to do a quick read since that period of time, Israel, whether a united kingdom or a divided kingdom, they were never kind to their prophets or their judges, were they, who spoke for the Lord. So yeah, Ezekiel had every reason to be afraid to speak to the people of God. But speak he must, by the order of the glorious manifestation of the Lord Almighty who now dwells in him by his Spirit. Verse 4, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Notice that detail about Ezekiel's commission, whether they listen or not. How Israel responds to Ezekiel's message is not supposed to be Ezekiel's care. Ezekiel is commissioned to be God's prophet, God's ambassador, God's commissionary. And that is all that he should care about being. 
And then Yahweh repeats that part of the commission again in verse 7 when he says, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. Ezekiel isn't given any hope whatsoever here that the exiles will soften their hearts towards the Lord. But he still had to speak for the Lord. Does any of that kind of sound New Testamenty to you? If you turn to John chapter 5, to the Gospels in the New Testament, John chapter 5, verse 36 to 40, here we have Jesus, the Son of Man, speaking to a group of Jewish leaders. And he says this, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the living, breathing, walking word of God. The son of God and the son of man. And he was faithful to testify to everything that was in the father's will. And even the most enlightened, most religious among the Jews refused to receive his message and to come to him for eternal life. But a commission from God is a commission from God. Say that with me. A commission from God is a commission from God. Even today, there are people who will refuse the message of salvation. They will hear it, but they will refuse it. They won't listen. And that's especially hard when it's people within your own family, isn't it? People in your life network that you really care about. And it's especially scary to be God's ambassador to those who you know well. But an ambassador you are. Jesus gave each of us a great commission before his ascension, right? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, listen guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he reiterates that that commission by way of saying, listen, not only do you have that, but you also have power to back that up. When he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar to Ezekiel? In in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 20, we have Jesus, we have the, the commission reiterated another way by Paul. He says, since then, verse 11, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Verse 18, God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore others on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Tell me if those commissions aren't petrifying to you. They are. They're scary. As one who speaks for God. 
It's scary. But a commission from God is a commission from God. Can we say that again? A commission from God is a commission from God. And like Ezekiel, he commands us to not be afraid of rebellious, rejecting people, but to to fear him as Lord. Number two, to be God's commissionary, you have to eat all his words, not just the words you like. Let me repeat that again. To be God's commissionary, you have to eat all the words, all his words, not just the words you like. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and then on to 30, uh, chapter 3. He says in verse 9, Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, and then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. Verse 5. You are not being sent to the people of obscure speech and strange language. In other words, you're not being sent to the Babylonians, but to the people of Israel. Now, to many peoples of obscure, not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language, whose words you cannot understand, surely if I had sent you to them, you would have li- uh, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate, but I will make you an unyielding, as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are rebellious people. Remember, this is not a vision of Ezekiel's mind, but an actual encounter with the living God. This is a familiar divine council throne room scene where God in human form stretches out his hand and offers his delegate his marching orders by way of a scroll. This idea that God could be present among men in in a form like a man, in a human-like body, is not new to the new Christian era like is in the incarnation of Jesus. Last week we read about Ezekiel's initial encounter and those of Moses and others, Jacob. If you missed last week's message, just go to our YouTube page. Last week we read about Ezekiel's initial encounter, though let's read a little bit of it. Verse 26, chapter 1. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapsus lazuli. And high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounding him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Again, we talked about theophanies last week. Check out our YouTube page if you missed it. But this is a very real thing for Ezekiel. This is happening in real time, a very real experience. So what are we to do with this command to eat a scroll? Did you ever eat paper as a kid? 
Come on, confession time. I, once, uh, maybe even a few times, uh, eating some cheat notes in class just so I wouldn't get caught, you know. It happens. I wasn't a believer then. Well, a scroll would be made, this scroll would have been made of something edible. Not leather, or obviously not stone. It's a scroll. It was edible. Papyrus was the usual common form of a scroll in the day. And papyrus is vegetable matter, so it's actually an edible plant. The parts of the plant that are edible apparently taste like hazelnut. I had to Google that to find out. And after eating it, Ezekiel said, it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Verse 10 gives us another description of it. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Writing on both sides, front and back, implies that the scroll was so full of the words of God that the prophet had no room to add his own message, his own words, which was actually commanded of him later. It says in verse 4, Then he said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them, not your own. And the nature of the message of the words of the Lord are that of lament, mourning, and woe. Have you ever heard what those emotions feel like and sound like? These words from the Lord carry with them a passionate, guttural expression of grief and sorrow. Oh. They come from deep inside a person who is suffering a great loss. It's a little odd then, isn't it, that the scroll would have tasted as sweet as honey. It's got to have crossed your mind from time to time that the message of the gospel of Jesus that we have in this new covenant is a message that is sweet to the taste, right? But that's only sweet to you because you believe it and trust it. To those who reject it, it is a message of lament and mourning and woe, and it is distasteful in their mouth. We celebrated communion last week. To be saved, the blood of Christ is beautiful. To the saved, the blood of Christ is beautiful. To those who are living in rebellion to Jesus, it's disgusting. And it is a very thing that in the end will judge both the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? I want to read to you the prophecies at the end of Yahweh's book, in the book of Revelation. There's some parallels to Ezekiel's vision here, but see how this makes you feel. Revelation 5, 6 to 10. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then he had taken it. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell face down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of, full of incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them into a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll because of his shed blood on the cross, right? 
You and I, because we accepted the word of God, benefit from his blood. And our joy is that in the future, people from every tribe, language, and people group, and nation will become heirs of the royal throne of David because of his blood. But the fact is, all those future peoples depend on those who are commissioned to share that message of Christ with them, right? As Paul says, how then can they hear unless someone is what? Sent. How can they hear unless someone preaches? That commission is scary, isn't it? But without faithful commissionaries, multitudes will face lament, mourning, and woe when Christ comes to wrap up his plan of salvation. The benefits of God's word and the gospel are sweet indeed to us who believe because we believe. But with that believing, there comes great obligation. Those who benefit from the words of God need to eat all his words, not just the words we like. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's fantastic. But what about go into all nations and make disciples? What about you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth? What about he has given us a message and a ministry of reconciliation for all people? Those who benefit from the words of God need to eat all his words, not just the ones they like. Are you hearing from me, people of God? We dare not neglect our commission. We dare not ignore some of the words of God simply because they're hard or scary. People are dying and they're going to a Christless eternity when, when they are just mere scoffers and their scoffing scares us. We need to stop being afraid. Like the Israelites of Ezekiel's day, there are people in your life network that are hard-hearted and obstinate. There are people who have never believed even though they've heard. There are people who never have believed because they've never heard. And there are people who don't believe now even though they've heard and said they believed once. People are dying and going to a crisis eternity all the time all around us. So we need to ask God to make us like Ezekiel, verse, thir- verse 8, unyielding and as, as hardened as they are in order to get the word of the Lord to them. Ezekiel 3, verse 9. Yahweh says to Ezekiel, I will make your forehead like the hardest stone. Some of you are saying, that's my husband. Harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. The implication is, chapter 2, verse 7, we must speak his words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, even, they, even if they are a rebellious people, needless or regardless of what Yahweh says, they will know that a prophet is among them, even if they reject it. In other words, they have no excuse on the day of judgment. This is when Yahweh steps up the commitment and the covenant, and he needs to do this with Yahweh in this commission. Listen to it. This is point number three. There are real damning consequences to neglecting our commission. There are real damning consequences to neglecting our commission. Verse 10. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. 
Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whether they listen or fail to listen. This is another reason that I see here for this being a real experience and not just a vision. Then the Spirit lifted me up. And I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound of the glory of the Lord as it rose to the place, from the place where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing up against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in anger in my spirit and with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived in Tel Aviv, not Tel Aviv where it is now, but near the Kebar River. And there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. And at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak, out, or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sins, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not warn the wicked person, and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sins. But you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die in their sins. The righteous, the righteous things a person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do not war- but if you do warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, They will surely live because they took warning and you will be saved yourself. Ezekiel is called to sound the alarm. And it appears from verses 15 to 17 especially that Ezekiel sat among the exiles for seven days saying nothing. He just sat there in bitterness and anger. He refused to speak what the Lord had commanded him to speak. And so Yahweh warns him and he says, telling him that he will be held accountable for what he did with the words of the Lord. One commentator, Michael Heiser, an Old Testament scholar, said it this way, the question for Ezekiel and for us is not whether we are watchmen, but whether we are good ones. If Ezekiel didn't go, if he didn't speak all the words the Lord God had given him to speak, then It would mean destruction for the Israelites and their blood would be on his hands. To refuse to fulfill one's prophetic commission and duty is a capital crime. If, on the other hand, he proclaimed the message faithfully, but they still refused to listen and repent, then their blood would be on their own hands, but Ezekiel would still be saved. The question for us today is, what are we doing with the message we have been given? Do we see ourselves as commissioned messengers of the words of God, animated by His Holy Spirit, to be witnesses and ambassadors everywhere in the world? I don't know about you, but I hear a divinely imposed urgency in all of this. Do you? I mean, have we forgotten that those who refuse the words of Christ will be destroyed? 
like Ezekiel, we can do whatever we want with the living words of God. But how long can we refuse to speak about what we know about the way of salvation before the consequences are too damning even for us? And for those in the once saved, always saved camp, think of it this way. Weren't you born again to be Christ's follower? Matthew 28. So what should God do with a follower that isn't following? Weren't you born again to be Christ's witness in the world? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What should God do with a witness who doesn't witness of his saving power? We know that being saved is more than just being a good person. Even the pagans can do that. But you and I were saved for something more. You and I were saved to save the world for Christ. Like Ezekiel, we are not responsible for someone hearing the gospel and rejecting it, but we are responsible for making sure they hear it, right? See why nobody preaches on Ezekiel these days? Because it's hard-hitting and it's guilt-inducing. We'd much rather read the nicer passages of Scripture. Verse four, or point number four. Remember, you are obligated to speak the words of God but the results are up to God. You are obligated to speak the words of God, but the results are up to God. Chapter 3, verse 22. The hand of the Lord was on me there. I think he means I'm feeling really guilty right now. And he said to me, go up and go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory I had seen by the Kebar River, And I fell face down. And then the Spirit came into me, raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, Go, shut yourself inside your house. Verse 25. And you, son of man, they will tie you with ropes. You will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them. For they are a rebellious people. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen, let them listen. And whoever refuses, let them refuse. For they are a rebellious people. Although this is the third time he sees the kavod, the the glory of the Lord standing in front of him, the sight still catches him in awe. He drives him to the ground, face down in worship. He never treats his relationship with God as a casual thing. It's probably a good reason why he was picked for this task. For sure, Ezekiel was already an ordained priest, but now he's also a prophet, a commissioned, authorized, empowered watchman and evangelist for the nation of Israel. Yet how often have we seen him prostrate before the Lord already? I think that shows both his loyalty and his dependency on the Lord. This is important because it tells us that the empowerment of the Spirit of God to speak the words of God follow time spent with God. How much time do you spend with God, fellow commissionary? It's proportionate to the amount of time you spend telling others about God. 
Oddly, following this chastisement for sitting silent among the exiles, it was the spirit who commanded Ezekiel to shut himself in his house. Why would he command Ezekiel to speak up and then force him into silence? It's easy to explain why his fellow exiles are tying him up in ropes because they don't want to hear his message. They want to continue doing what they think is wise in their own eyes. They, they didn't want to be convicted. So they tie him up so that they can't tell anybody anything. But why did the Lord shut him up in his house and then strike him with mootness for what ended up being seven years? One year for every day he sat silent. Daniel Block in his commentary on Ezekiel says that Ezekiel's silence was Yahweh's way of distancing the prophet from his fellow exiles. Why? To stifle any impulse he had as a priest to side with or mediate on their behalf. He says both the commission narrative and the induction speech had served notice that the fate of the nation was sealed. The sentences of lamentations, mourning, and woe cannot be withdrawn. By imposing this dumbness on Ezekiel, Yahweh denies him the freedom to avert the fall of the city, either by appealing for a reprieve or by calling the people to repentance. Are you shaking your head going, what? what's going on here? Why would he do that? Why This seems really too harsh. How could the Lord prevent his own people from repenting? What all the, that weirdness means is that everything that... Israel believed, what they believed secured their salvation, namely the holy city and the temple, emblems of God's eternal presence among them, was going to be erased once and for all. Why? Because it was never supposed to be about the city or the temple. God himself, not the buildings, was supposed to be Israel's security. He was to be worshipped, not a place. Salvation under the Old Covenant is guaranteed in the same way that it is guaranteed in the New Covenant that we live under, by believing loyalty to God. So though at first read it may seem cruel to prevent them from repenting, it was actually the greatest mercy that Yahweh could have given them. Look at the timeline up on the overhead here. From the period of the judges to the exile, for over 500 years, 500 years later, the people of God chose to do what was right in their own eyes instead of follow the covenants of Yahweh and their descendants. According, actually, their rebellion goes all the way back to Exodus, doesn't it? Back out of Egypt. So for nearly a thousand years, these so-called people of God remained rebellious, obstinate, stubborn, and a nation who did nothing but revolt against the Lord. But Yahweh hadn't forgotten his part of the promise, his part of the covenant. His great faithfulness meant that he needed to separate his people from the city and from the temple once and for all so that they would remain and be loyal to the Lord their God only. He alone was their salvation. God in his mercy had to bring this about upon his people in order to save them. But poor Ezekiel, A righteous man who had to watch in silence as his people, as his fellow Israelites and exiles were brought to a place of utter defeat. So yeah, the words written on the scroll that he had to eat were full of lament and mourning and woe, but the, the scroll was still as sweet as honey. Why? Because as hard hearted 
And as heart-wrenching as the judgments were, they were the only way to bring a people back to God. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that sometimes, even today, the only way God can get some believers' attention, people who say they believe in Him, sometimes God has to bring lament and mourning and woe into their experience because He has already tried to be nice, but they're not listening. And they keep turning away from Him. See, it's not about this place either. As much as, even it wasn't as much about the temple. It's about being a subject of the Lord your God. God is more concerned with our salvation and our part in His commission than He is about our comfort in this world. That's a hard truth. And God, in His great wisdom, if He has to, He will and can bring face down worship before us, before Him. We can either go to that place willingly, like Ezekiel did, or the hard way. He'd much rather we go willingly in worship. See, if you believe you already gave God permission to make you like His Son, Jesus, a loyal commissioner, and again, He'd much rather you submit willingly. And if that's you today, then you know what you have to do. Like Ezekiel, You need to get face down with God. You need to get prostrate before the Lord. If that's someone you know and you're burdened by the pain that they're going through these days, release them to the Lord and to His discipline. Because in the end, it will be the best thing the sovereign Lord can do for them. Here are our main points again for today. God's commission can be scary. Number two, to be God's commissionary, you have to eat all His words, not just the words you like. And understand that there are damning consequences for neglecting our commission. And number four, remember you are obligated to speak the words of God, but the results are up to God. Let's pray. Worship team. Lord, we're only into chapter 2 and 3 of this book, and already it's hard-hitting. But Lord, make it as sweet as honey to our taste. I suppose if there is nothing that we need to feel guilty for, then there is nothing we need to be guilty of. And it wouldn't then taste bitter and woeful and lamentable to us, this gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word. As tough as it is sometimes to hear and receive, but we know that it is for our perfection. It is for your glory. So we we release our ears to hear from you today. And even throughout the rest of the day, we release our hearts to be reminded of the things of God that we heard today so that we will truly be the people of God. 